0: This episode of The Sportsman's Empire is brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Since 1952, Interstate Batteries has been evoking compassion and a trustworthy spirit into the surrounding communities. Interstate Batteries is a mission-driven company fueled by purpose and guided by their values. If you need help locating a specific battery, stop into your local Interstate Batteries retail store and speak with a battery specialist. They even offer cell phone repairs. Interstate Batteries outrageously dependable you're listening to the pennsylvania woodsman powered by sportsman's empire podcast network
1: this show is driven to provide relatable hunting and outdoor content in the keystone state and surrounding northeast on this show you'll hear an array of perspectives from biologists and industry professionals
0: to average joes with a lifetime of knowledge all
1: centered around values aiming to be better outdoorsmen and women both in the field as well as home and daily life no clicks, no self interest, just delight in the pursuit of creation.
0: And now, your host, the pride of Pennsylvania, the man who shoots straight and won't steer you wrong, Johnny Appleseed himself, Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Hope everything's going well in your neck of the woods been going pretty well in mine I got to do a couple fun things here lately one of those being I got to follow up with a friend of mine uh, playing some strategies back and forth in our heads and putting it on paper and talking it through of how to convert one of his current agriculture fields into wildlife habitat And talking with this person and some of the goals that they have they really they really want to try to maximize their property for hunting and when you look at the location of their property and where it sets in the surrounding neighborhood, one of the biggest limiting factors was quality cover, quality security, and browse. Uh, we, we just There's a pretty good amount of deer here, the browse lines pretty hammered. Uh, There's some programs going on that don't really allow heavy tree cutting on the property, which is a unique situation, and I don't need to bore you with that, but basically what it comes down to is we're looking to try to expand some hunting opportunity and hopefully stack a couple more deer in here by producing more groceries and having some cover. So converting fields, you know, one of the... a lot of people think that converting a field really just looks like planning a food plot and in some cases it is you know there's some farms locations everything else where you could take a five acre field like this and turn the majority of it into food and that's the right answer and by that I'm talking food plots and you know maybe that would fit the prescription here it's just we're we're basing it off of what we're seeing in the surrounding habitat and everything else and you know it's going to turn into there's going to be a couple of kill plot locations in this food in this uh, field conversion places that we can make good access and screen but uh, within the interior of it there's going to be lines of cover there's going to be brush piles plantings you know stuff like that to try to hopefully house more deer and I wanted to bring this up because you know field conversions can get a little overwhelming a lot of people think it's simple you just let them go fallow and what happens happens and I could tell you depending on how that field has been managed agriculturally and everything else you might have a mess on your hands if you do that especially if you look at the surrounding neighborhood and if it's all invasive plants the autumn olives the japanese honeysuckles the stilt grass all that stuff if that's what's filling up the property around the field there's a good chance that eventually that's what's going to come in there so there's a lot of work that goes into maintaining and setting up what you're trying to do is you're trying to replace plants that have been there with something you want. So you literally are picking and choosing in this process of succession what, what lives and what dies. And there's a couple ways to manage that. Uh, one of the unique things with this property was they want to do it with minimal herbicide. And I'll be vulnerable here. I'm not a real good uh, person for that. I, I don't know how to do something with the outcome in my mind without using herbicide to some degree. Now, I will tell you one of the strategies that I would implore, and I've I've done this with some organic farms I've worked with, and that's using a ton of green manure. And what that looks like, you've got you know, seed companies like Vitalize Seed are great for this because they have a great job of cycling nutrients and building up organic material on top of the soil and returning it. But when you do that over time, uh, you know, a, couple, a few years, you can start to bury the seeds, uh, the weed seeds that are in the seed bed, with that mulch, and you're you're preparing the seed bed for what you want to grow. So. You know, one of the things I think is going to happen, you're probably going to see, I'm thinking I'm going to see with, with my friend's property here, is he's probably going to plant something that's going to create a lot of biomass. And I know one of the recommendations he had was to plant a solid buckwheat monoculture buckwheat is great it does a fantastic job of suppressing weeds because of the viney structure you can plant it thick as the hair on a dog you can plant through it and roll it and it's very very you know high in moisture and not stalky if you do it at an early age one of the problems you're going to have with that though is buckwheat killed when it's you know five feet tall just before it flowers out has a very very low carbon to nitrogen ratio it's going to break down in the soil very very quickly. And that might be okay for certain planting situations, but if you're trying to convert a field and prevent non-desirable plants from coming up through, you kind of want a little bit of biomass there. And you can't beat diversity. And when I'm talking diversity, I'm not talking three- and four-way mixes. I'm talking like 10, 13, 14, 15-way mixes. And do your research, do your homework with the seed company that you do that with to build up organic material, cycle nutrients, suppress weeds with a biological component, and uh, you'll have a lot more success. But it's going to require a spring planting, and when that matures, you're going to do a fall planting, and you're going to keep repeating that process until you start to suppress the weed beds. And I've seen situations where in doing that, you still don't get it established well, and you need to use a little bit of herbicide. You know, think about weed management and what we're using. In agricultural, we're using chemical uses, we're using mechanical uses, and biological uses for weed suppression. Now what I mean by mechanical, that that could be tillage. Some forms of tillage will help with that. Some forms of tillage will hurt that. But tillage is an option. Another option, mechanical, is pulling weeds, which I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound real fun to me in a five acre setting. And biological and the biological component is synergism and antagonism you're using plants that are going to set your seed base up and promote what you want to grow it's kind of hard to explain and i don't think i need to bore you guys with that too long some of you might understand that some of you might not even have the thought of converting a field but i felt like this was relevant to share because this is the planning phase of the year right now um if if you're ever in a situation where you're talking about converting ag land, I, I think the biggest thing to keep in mind is lines of cover. You know, in this situation, we're planting some switchgrass lines and curves, and we're we're planting some some different trees for cover, some different trees and shrubs we're going to protect and hopefully establish the the desirable browse cover species we want you know maybe it's a choke cherry plant maybe it's elderberries, some kind of browse bramber bramble briar type thing but The first five years are the most difficult one that because whatever's been growing after that corn crop or that soybean crop has been coming off is going to be weeds. Some of those weeds are going to be positive. Some of those weeds are going to be negative. And the most important thing that you can do is go out there and somehow, some way, remove what you don't want and keep what you do want and let that succession process go. I've found the easiest way to do that Is if you got an open cab tractor with a spray wand and a big tank, or you know you could do that in a four wheeler or something like that. Go around and drive through and learn to identify plants. Spray the ones that you don't and kill them. And uh, if you know it's a it's a direct choice, which ones stay and which ones go. You're not blanket applying, so that is going to take a lot of work. And I've seen I have a, a case where that wasn't kept up the first few years. And locust trees, I think it's black locust, have just completely overtaken this field. And I am not anti-black locust, but they can really overtake a a point. Like they grow quick, they canopy over, they get stickery, like they get to a point where they're so thick when they're young that stuff will avoid them. So keeping after it, you can set the foundation up. So I, I just thought that was worth talking about and uh, part of the reason it was worth talking about to me was because I think some of it relates to the guests we have on this week Uh, this week we have back on my good friend Dustin Adam and I say it relates to him because you know he's tinkering with some stuff on his farm that he has he's uh, he's got some plans in place he's working towards uh, putting those into practice and hopefully having better wildlife habitat and deer hunting for he and his family to uh, over the course of, you know, his lifetime and whatever the good Lord has in store for him there, but we're going to catch up with Dustin and, and talk about what's been going on the past two to three seasons with him. How things have rapidly changed between um, the purchase of a farm, the uh, the the new daughter that he has in his life. We're going to talk about the first buck kill on the property. I believe it was this year, which was a really, really cool story that he sh- uh, that he shared with his stepson Waylon. We're going to talk about early season strategies one of the things he's really shared with me and is going to share with you guys about how they have found good success getting on the best deer in the area in early season we're going to talk a little bit about that he's going to share the the buck stories that he harvested the past two years some really really dandy bucks check the pictures out of some of the bucks he's killed um i, I posted it on instagram If you're not following social media, I don't blame you. But if you follow social media and you don't follow me, it's at Pennsylvania woodsman podcast. We post all our stuff for the show there. And uh, I'd love to have you come on. I'd love to hear every anybody's review. You know, I, I, say this it's hard to interact with everybody sometimes i get feedback and it's on a platform that i don't even know you said something but you said something positive and i appreciate that you know you can get a hold of us on instagram facebook messenger and facebook in general i guess although i spend more time on instagram and email us at uh it's p a woodsman podcast at gmail.com uh p a the letters woodsman podcast at gmail.com would really appreciate um feedback support um even criticism keep it nice i like i like nice (laughs) but let's get to this episode with dustin right before we do shout out to our partners radix hunting guys if you are going to upgrade cameras this year if you're going to replace some i just went through my camera stash and was pulling cards uh pulling batteries stowing stuff away that i'm not using and i realized like i'm going to increase my level of gen 600 because i use cameras um you know regular cameras on different properties for kind of soaking and i was disappointed with the old cameras i had some of them weren't working right i wasn't getting pictures consistently i wasn't getting clear pictures and that drove me nuts and it spoiled me when I used Radix cameras this year because I had the opposite experience, I had great camera imagery, I had uh, rapid picture responses, Um, uh, you name it when it comes to the things you want out of a camera. I had them with the, the Radix cameras, I used a bunch of the cell cameras, the M cores, They were great. I really encourage you to check out Radix Hunting. they got a lot of other stuff to offer. The stick and pick camera accessories. Place your camera anywhere you want, you need. I used some tree stands this year that were from Radix. It's solid, quiet, a lot of great hunting products coming from Radix Hunting. And be sure, if you're listening to this this week, we're still doing the, the, we still got the Great American Outdoor Show. Check them out at the Great American Outdoor Show this year. They are there. Look them up talk to the crew great guys and Huntworth clothing guys don't miss out on the opportunity for the winter clearance event huntworthgear.com check out all of the stuff that is marked down you've got options from getting some snow camo i've been using the disruption pattern which is the digital stuff i can't say enough positive things about the huntworth gear really cut down on the bulk but kept me warm when it was late season the Saskatoon heat boost stuff that's that heat boost is truly incredible i was uh, really surprised at how well that kept me warm even through windy situations water situations the the late season hunting was really comfortable for me and the the system I used the most often this past year I used Durham pants, which are the lightweight pants. It was easy to put something on underneath, like uh, long underwear if it wasn't too hot, and you had to walk in far. And the Durham pants had you know really good mobility and breathability there, but you know served its purpose there. And then like the the Elkins coat, Elkins vest, Elkins pants, which are you know the warmer pants. They're kind of your midweights. Again, I was just really, really satisfied all year long, beginning of the season to the end of the season, comfortable stuff, and a really cool camel pattern. So check out Huntworth Gear. I don't think you'd be disappointed in any way, shape, or form in utilizing some of their products for this fall. Check it out. You might be able to save yourself some money on the winter clearance event. And with that, guys, let's get to this episode. So, hey, joining us on this week's show, I got my friend Dustin Adam. Dustin, welcome back to the show. How you been?
1: I've been great, Mitch. How you been?
0: Well, it's it's weird. Um, I kind of go into, I would say, deer-pression. I do it every year. Deer season ends. Like, I literally, the other night, I was, I, I didn't, feel like sleeping so i'm going through hunting stuff i I had to clean my my flintlock here and you know i went through the whole process and doing a thorough cleaning and put it up on the shelf and i'm like looking at it and i'm thinking it's over i gotta wait another eight nine what months or whatever it is until i can do this over again but that's just the way it goes uh all good things come to an end and we repeat the process but i'm i'm working my way through it i guess
1: sure dear impression so you're probably on pace pretty soon here. You'll be walking out to all of your favorite hunting spots, looking around for things to do, you know, just uh, trying to to find your way to get back out there again, right?
0: Well, in theory, yes. However, however, um, I I have to say that there is a back porch project that is halfway finished. It got put on hold when deer season opened and hasn't been reintroduced since and I'm looking over here at my basement, and I've got mountains of stuff everywhere, and I'm, I'm thinking about all the other stuff, so before I do, uh, I do anything for next season, I'm probably going to have to scratch a couple honey-do list things off and pretty much just uh, put some attention to the things that I've neglected for the past three months around my house. Um, not necessarily because my wife's harassing me, but I can't stand the clutter anymore, and it's, it's getting the best of me.
1: Yeah, no, I hear you on that, and I got to be honest, like, this year, um, you know, I was fortunate I was able to take my buck um, close to middle to end of October, and um, my wife was doing a majority of the hunting, so I was at home um, playing Mr. Mom for, for a lot of the season, and, you know, just those couple of Sundays, I don't know how folks who live in Sunday hunting states do it. Like we take it for granted, and I'll kick stones. Sometimes and be like, man, this is the greatest hunting day of the week. We've got rising pressure. We got you know temperatures low. You know all the conditions always seem to be great on Sundays. But at the same time, if there's nothing legally forcing me out of the woods, I'm that's where I'm going to be. And I take for granted all the little things that I get done on Sundays. And you know this year, having having my daughter um, during that time of year where we have those three consecutive Sundays, a hunt man. I, I was pretty close to putting a handprint on a volleyball and and naming him and and going crazy, like it was. Uh, yeah, it was it was wild.
0: Yeah, I uh, I can relate. We, so I'm I'm pro Sunday hunting. I'm not against Sunday hunting. In fact, I think it would be a good thing and a lot of for a lot of reasons if it would be open every Sunday in Pennsylvania, however, I can I can be the first to say I would probably not do a lot of Sunday hunting personally for a bunch of different reasons, and I was talking about this uh, when I did the episode with my grandfathers, um, you know, they're from the the older generation or mentality, um, and they're not for Sunday hunting, and one thing that one of them said that has resonated with me ever since he said it, and I have to agree, is when we introduced the Sunday hunting to uh, bear season, and then the first weekend of deer season. One thing it did is it sped up the pace of life. Like I, I think about the way bear season used to be, we used to go up Saturday afternoon or Sunday or Sunday, and you know we spend all day in camp, catch up with people we haven't seen. And then you'd go out and you'd hunt Monday and Tuesday and come home Tuesday night or Wednesday or whatever. And the same thing with deer camp, like you'd go up, you know, Friday or Saturday. And then even when you had the, the Saturday opener, you know, it, it sped things up, but, you know, we'd hunt Saturday, we'd hunt hard, and then you had Sunday to recoup a little bit. And then you had Monday. Now it's Saturday, Sunday. It's literally turned into, get you know, Friday, I work a full day, I pack the truck up i head to camp hunt saturday hunt sunday and I, I either you know maybe i'll come home in bear season i might come home sunday night or monday morning or something like that depends what i'm doing in but it's just it just keeps you going constantly and in a world where we don't know how to slow down um as much as i want to keep hunting sometimes i need it like i physically need it and I, I mentally need to slow down
1: yeah i mean that's that is what, that's a big part of what hunting is to us, right? Like it's, it's a way to slow down. It's a way to detach. It's a way to just get away from the noise. And when you add all that stress into hunting, I think it takes away from the greater picture and a, a big part of, at least for me, why I do it. Um, so, you know, we went through a stretch this year where, you know, again, my wife was, was grinding and, yeah, you know, she was not in the headspace for me to say it, but you know, she was just not having fun. And I was like, listen, if it's not fun, don't go. And at the time, that was the wrong thing to say. Cause again, like she, she just wasn't in the headspace for it. But later, I think, you know, she was able to decompress a little and we talked about it. And yeah I remember being there. Um, and it's really ironic, you know, so last time we did a podcast, I think I talked. A lot about my journey, um, you know, being a, a, a an archery hunter in Pennsylvania, and kind of, you know, my first few big successes and kind of that that affirmation that came with it. And I remember that grind up into and just, you know, hunting's one of those things you've got to love it or it's gonna destroy you. And that sounds odd to say, but you know, if you don't love the grind it's, it's not a friendly sport. You, it's a sport where you can do everything right and fail and, and you fail a lot. You know, it's, it's one of those things. And I think we've become a lot more efficient. I know on some of your episodes, you've talked about the efficiencies of, of trail cameras and such. And, and I thank the lucky stars for some of those, because, you know, in, in my world now, I don't have as much time to do, um, to be in the woods anymore. So being efficient is key. But yeah, if, if, if you, if you don't absolutely love it and if you don't embrace it and if you're, if your only definition of success is, is bringing home, um, is bringing home a harvest, it can be grueling, man. And it's, it's unforgiving. And you know that, and I know that, and I think everybody who's, um, an outdoorsman knows that, but it's so hard to get, you know, it's easy to get caught up. I think, you know, you look at social media and, you know you follow enough people somebody's successful every day and you're sitting there going why isn't that me yeah you know, it can it can get rough but i think the high and low of it is you have to remember why you do it and being successful shouldn't be why you do it i mean we've all loved to be successful but at the end of the day it's it's embracing the moment it's appreciating creation it is you know, just appreciating the the opportunity to be outside and, and connect with these animals, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And when when you put success at the at the the forefront, I think you lose that.
0: Well, that's so, an, that's I don't know. Ext- I rambled a little there. No, you're good. And I mean, it's an extreme fine line because <clears throat> while while we're we're saying all this, I will be the first to admit I I'm in a position for the past few years where. I I've said this to a couple friends and stuff and I just said it to my dad the other day. I said, I honestly wanna know how much I would have to go hunting until I would get tired of it. Because like case in point with me this year, um I, I had maybe an average, maybe a little bit below average amount of times that I went hunting, I had a very successful year. But I even though I was successful in shot, you know, game and, and everything else I just wanted to keep going. I wanted to. I wanted to get tired of hunting. And I, I've, I've, haven't been there. I, first of all, I don't know if I've ever been there in my life. Second of all, I definitely haven't been there anytime recently. Um, and, and I kind of want to experience that. And when you talk about the grind and and people who experience the grind and talk about getting burned out and stuff like that, personally, I think for a lot of people, it's Easier to get, how do I word this? It's easier to get burned out or to like not enjoy the grind amidst everything else going on in your daily life. All your responsibilities, all your deadlines, your obligations and responsibilities. If you could have a little bit of a buffer in all that, you probably would be able to concentrate and enjoy what you're doing but for me personally it's the back and forth where like i'm gonna cut, try to sneak a quick hunt in here and when you're in it you're in that moment and you enjoy it and then oh i gotta go home i gotta run home and you know you know do this odd and end thing like it's it, it's the it's the back and forth and the the switching the light on and off i think that get gets me and i, I think it's a lot of people when i've talked to them um sure. So, I mean, yeah, if you could just, like, erase all that stuff. But that's not going to happen. That's not normal for anybody. And I'll, the other thing, too, is if uh, if I didn't have all those other responsibilities, Lord knows how much of a different game it would be. I mean, I'd be so so much more self-centered than I already am. But that's a whole other different topic. So my, my turn sure. for rambling, man. So how did your season go?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's crazy. And I'll back up just a step before I start talking about it. it I was looking back on the last time I, I did this with you and, and I, I appreciate you having me back on. Um, Loki, I, I'm totally your biggest fan. Like my phone tells me when you have new episodes, I think I've met like half of your guests. It's, it's a, it's a really cool podcast. So like I gotta say, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, but the last time I was on with you was June of 21. So like I just kind of rewound, you know, where, where was I in, in my life back in June 21? And it was just a, a couple of short months after, um, my wife and I found out that, that we were expecting. And well, of course, a couple of short months after that, my daughter was born, um, in the interim. Yeah. I, I know, you know, you, you know this, but the listeners out there, um, who may be tuning in don't, um, my, my wife and I also settled on a farm property, um, that January. So life has changed a lot. I was named a partner in my firm, which was a, a huge deal and carries some responsibility. So again, you know, it, it's been such, such a, a crazy whirlwind. And, you know, to, to look at then versus now, again, you know, a lot of what I talked about on that podcast was just my journey as a bow hunter in Pennsylvania. And I feel like I've progressed so much over the past two years since then actually it's kind of crazy to think about that, you know, you've been doing this almost two years now. So, um, yeah, it's, it's wild to think about, man.
0: It really but is. Like...
1: Anywho, um, no, it was a good year. And, um, I'll say this year was, was slim pickings compared to last year. We've, we've been just so blessed. I, I think I've been blessed in a, a lot of areas of life, but these, past couple of years we've really been blessed and had some great opportunity at some great deer and i remember last year during the summer i don't know that i've ever had summer trail camera pictures quite like i did two summers ago you know coming into the year we have some pretty reasonable standards um and we had eight to nine deer that i would have called shooters uh when i say shooters you know we're looking for mature deer to me, you know, mature deer is, is four years old. Um, and I'm not saying all eight or nine of those deer were four years old. Um, obviously I'm not out there pulling teeth and, and doing the the hard work to tell you, but you know, they sure looked the part. If not, they were, they were well-fed three-year-olds. So, you know, we, we really had some high hopes and coming into last season, um, the very first day, I've got a tradition and if, if anybody listened to the last podcast I did, um, the, the tree that I took junior out of, um, is my first day tree. And I will be completely honest. It is a terrible idea to walk in there in the dark. Um, but it's just something I do every single year. Um, every single year I bust a deer or two on the way in. It, it's not a great idea, but I do tend to have really good sets. And, um, you know, I had a very active morning and that evening it was, it was my wife's turn to go out. And within 10 minutes, I got a call from my dad that he, um, shot a buck and was going to need some help getting out of the woods. I got a call from my buddy who shot a bear. Um, and I got a call from my wife who shot a buck. And the, the wild part about, um, the, the call from Brandy was that she had texted me maybe a half hour before that that she saw our
0: the best buck that we had on camera. If you're looking to simplify your food plot system while enhancing the quality of your soil you need to check out Vitalize Seed Company. Vitalize provides top quality seed blends designed to fit into their one-two planting system. This system has been designed to allow highly diverse plant species to grow synergistically optimizing nutrient uptake and cycling the way God intended. Reduce your inputs, build your soil and maximize the quality tonnage for the wildlife in your area. Find out more about this system and get your seed at vitalizedseed.com and be sure to check them out on Instagram and Facebook.
1: Best, maybe second best, you know, there's two that are very close. Um, and it completely had her rattled. Um, he came by her on her blind side. She was watching some other deer. Um, he was about 35 yards. By the, t- by the time she got the bow and turned, it was just too late. He was out into the corn, and uh, she didn't have an opportunity. Well, another good buck came back out of the corn um, about a half hour later, started working a scrape, and she put a pretty good shot on him and um, you know, filled her tag. I think she literally hunted an hour and a half. You know, So it was just an insane first day. I think that evening we were out till one o'clock in the morning trying to you know recover all these animals so that kind of set the tone for what was just an an insane year um i played peekaboo with a lot of these other deer throughout the course of the, the balance of the season and actually you know if i'm being real my favorite hunt of last year was a hunt with with uh, my stepson. So we were out, it was his very first year hunting with a compound and we do run cell cameras. So there was a, uh, an abnormally large amount of activity on a couple of the cameras um, towards the South end of our farm property and, and they're cameras that don't normally get a lot of activity. So, you know, we we're, I think I want to say it was like November 6th. Um, so, you know, prime time, you know, it's, it's the rut. And I just kind of knew there had to have been a hot dough in the area. So I pick him up from school and I, I kind of set the expectation like, Hey bud, this, this is going to get pretty intense and we didn't have a lot of time to get in. Um, so, you know, we, he's changing in the car, we're running ozone on everything, trying to get about ascent free as we can. We actually had a pretty good neutral wind for where we wanted to go, um, And Mitch, if you remember, this is a, it's a stand down on the South end near the, the small swampy meadow Mm -hmm. um, that we have. So um, the, the farm property we have is adjacent to just on the North side of a 55 plus community. And the, the previous owners had also owned the, the 55 plus community. So there's some trails that connect and that, that makes this story all the more interesting, but we um, we are kind of using the the land to our advantage and walking in just a, kind of a, around a null in this cut cornfield. And I could see on the, the hill uh, across the valley, I could see deer running back and forth. And I just knew like, this is going to get pretty wild. And again, I just kind of kept, you know, setting that precedent for him. I want to stop you so, for a second.
0: I got to ask a question yeah. there too. So you're talking about taking Waylon out and and having, you know, him. You said about setting the expectation. So had he ever experienced anything with the with the high anticipation like you're describing at that point in his hunting career?
1: Um, the look on his face very shortly thereafter, where I was in the story says, no, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he'd, he'd seen deer, I think, you know, pre, probably pre rut, probably later in rifle season, but I don't know if he ever saw prime rut activity. And, you know, when I say prime rut activity, there's, there's a lot of folks out there who've seen it, you know, when you're in it during the heat of the rut, you're in it. Right. But at the same time, if you're not in it, you'll wonder if there's any deer that exists anymore. Mm-hmm. so we just happened to, again, you know, have one of these doe and she was laying low by the creek right there by the meadow. Um, but we're kind of hugging the edge of this, this cornfield and we get to, I'm going to say 30 yards from the wood line and, and we're, we're kind of crouched over walking in we're we're taking our time. And I can just hear things erupting just inside the wood line ahead of us um and and to paint the picture, you know again, we're in a, a cut corn field, it drops off probably twenty yards ahead of us, ten yards farther than that there's a, a wood line that drops down into a creek bottom and then there's a meadow. so we can't see what's happening we can we can see these trees probably ten to fifteen feet up um but we're creeping closer and closer and, and I'm looking at my watch because we're taking our time, and I realize you know if we're going to try to get to stand we we can't take forever so um you know we we get to a point i just start seeing these trees shake and again we're probably 20 yards from the wood line at this point because we're crawling on hands and knees to not be seen and there's a small lanthus tree just over the just over the bank that starts just completely shaking and i know this is a buck and, and he's just he's thrashing the bottom of this tree so I whisper "Way, I'm like, Hey man, you've got to knock an arrow right now. We're going to stay on our knees, but there's a good chance that this buck is going to come up over the hill. And when they get like this, they're, comp- it's almost like they're blind sometimes. You know, we may have an opportunity. It's going to be within your window of 20 yards. Um, and it's going to probably happen pretty quick. So I need you to be ready. So he knocks an arrow and we're we're sitting on our knees i'm I'm just behind him, and I just reached down and I, there was a stick laying in the corn fodder, and I snapped it and no sooner did I snap it, but this buck comes charging up over the knob and just staring at us fifteen yards. You could see the drool coming down out of his mouth, just in that wild possessed mode, and he's Waylon draws it it's like this intense stare down for a solid. You know, what feels like an hour and a half, but in all reality, it was probably 12 seconds. Um, but the deer's facing right at us, and I'm whispering to him, no shot, no shot, no shot. And right like that. He he doesn't spook, but he just turns right back around, goes down the bank. And I see the doe take off, and he follows her down the creek bottom, across the meadow, and up, the, up through the pines on the opposite side. So he's completely rattled and kind of feels defeated. And he's like, man, we didn't get a shot. And I'm like, no, it's okay this is the rut. That's not the end of it. So I was like, you know, that he just took the dough up and over. Now's our time. Let's not mess around. and Let's get in the tree stand. So we get down, we crawl up. I'm saddling on the back side of a, a hanging stand that we have. Um, and it was maybe the second or third time I got him in a hang on stand. So, you know, just the anxiety of getting him up there and getting a set. It was a lot. So we're not even set up for 15 minutes. I don't even know if he properly got the bow up the tree. And we have another small buck come out of the cornfield we were just in following our tracks right to us right under us and I said, "See, it's it's not over, Bud." So the hillside across from us is erupting all night and when I say all night, we probably had an hour and a half to hunt at this point. Like we till we got in it was late. Much later than I normally like to get in um but there's there's action everywhere and these deer kept working our way and we could see there was one pretty decent buck in the, in the batch um and a few small buck and they they're all but to us they're coming down they're just dropping down to the meadow and right like that they start one of the does starts blowing they all take off and i'm sitting there going what just happened you know we have the wind in our face the the thermal shouldn't be playing against us that bad I, I'm clueless, and here comes somebody walking over from this 55-plus community on one of these connected trails, head-to-toe, neon yellow jumpsuit. And he stops, and he just he's staring up in the woods. I don't think he understood what happened and what's making these noises. But he's sitting there with his arms crossed for probably 20 minutes, and Waylon is all but in tears. And I'm like, dude, it's it's okay. You know, there's nothing we can do. So... We just sit back and eventually he walks off and I can see, you know, Whalen's defeated. But there's a solid 20, 30 minutes of light left at the most. Um, and I'm like, listen, it's not over. Let me grab my grunt tube. We'll see if we can drum something up. So I go through a, a little bit of a grunt sequence. I clip the antlers together a little bit and I can see that the hillside starts to come alive again a little bit. And we, we actually do see the better of the buck slip out through the bottom of the pines and down into a thicket. But he's headed dead away from us. And shortly thereafter, we we had a doe come up through the cornfield we walked in on. And I don't know if he could have saw her from where he was, but instantly he emerges and he's he's hot on her tail. Now, they're going diagonally through the cornfield out away from us. I'm thinking there is not a chance that these deer are going to get within his 20 yard shooting window. And regardless, you know, I could see he shaking. I'm like, dude, get up, get your release on your bow. Let's get ready. Just in case I'll see if I can't call him in. So I'm grabbing for my grunt call and he has a, a thumb release. And when he goes to clip it on the string, it clicks and it clicks loud. It probably wasn't loud, but it's that time of night where it was just still. And Instantly, the the buck's head spins around. He's looking right at us. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, at that moment, he was probably 40 yards away. I'm like, that's it. Like, we're busted. But instead, he starts walking directly at us with an attitude. And I'm like, oh, man, this is is not happening. This is too good to be true. So I'm watching, and and he's rattled, and his, his knees are tapping pretty good. And I'm just sitting there saying, wait, wait, wait. We have one opening, it's this little opening I cut so we could drop down the bank to the stand. Doesn't the deer come to the wood line, walks behind a big tree, I tell Waylon to draw. He steps into that opening. I, in my wildest dreams, could not imagine if we were going to take a deer that night, it would have been in that opening. But it worked out as perfectly as it possibly could have. So it was maybe a 12-yard shot. He releases an arrow. We watch the Luminox. He hit him a little bit high, but it was a good double lung shot. And we watched the Luminoc dance out over the field. And right like that, we see it go vertical. And then we celebrate and just start losing our minds. <laughs> but the highs and lows in the, in a, probably a 90 minute span of that hunt, we walk up to the deer. It ends up being the same deer that all but charged us in the field. Um, it, it was just the coolest hunt I, I've ever been a part of. And I think a lot of that was that I wasn't in control of anything. I didn't have a bow with me. I was there for him. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was just so cool. It was the first year we took on our farm property. Um, my wife came out with, with my daughter. We got, you know, to get pictures together with, with all of us. It was really cool. And honestly, like if I didn't get a buck last season, that would have made my season that hunt alone. Mm. Um, but it was, it was really cool. And I know that's not necessarily a story you wanted to hear about, but in the time between my last podcast and now, that was it for me. Like, that was cool.
0: That, that's and pretty just, cool. I'm kind of curious, what do you think got that buck's attention to bring him in? You said the release clicked. I'm trying to think in my mind, what could that deer have possibly thought when it heard that to make him turn and come to 12 yards?
1: Well, there was just so much competition and again, you know, I, I think there's probably four or five young bucks chasing the same doe, and he was in that group. Um I really think he thought it was one of the others coming up and trying to make a move, and it got him fired up. Um It, it sounded like a twig breaking, if I were to make an analogy. Like, it wasn't overly loud, but it was loud enough to get his attention, and don't ask me what brought him in. You know, I... In my experiences in the woods, there's so many times you just you just can't ask yourself why because you don't have a good explanation and right you know then then you look upstairs and you realize you know maybe it was part of a plan but um yeah man it was that was such a cool hunt and just to be able to be a part of it and and see the range of emotions and. Anytime you get into one of those rut hunts where things are hot, it's always a good time. But that one was pretty cool because we got to capitalize.
0: Now, correct me if I'm wrong. He's He's been able to harvest a few deer now, hasn't he?
1: Yeah, so... so tell me about I mean, his we,
0: emotions with his first bow buck compared to all those.
1: Well, I wasn't with him for his first bow buck. His first okay. bow buck was he, was... he was eight years old. He was with Brandy. Um, I was about 200 yards away. And there's a recorded phone call that will tell you what Brandy's emotions were like. Um, there was a, a a whole lot of emotion in that phone call. And um, if you play it back, you, you would have swore he just knocked down the Milo Hansen buck. Um, <laughs> and don't get me wrong, it was about an 18-inch eight-pointer. It was a, it was a phenomenal first buck. And, and that year, he also got his first turkey with that same crossbow. I think collectively, he earned 40 minutes for both of them. So he's had a lot of great opportunities. Um, he's killed a few deer with a rifle, both with us and with his dad. Um, so, you know, he's he's had a, a, a lot of really good opportunities in his young hunting career. Um, but I think, you know, again, the range of emotions in that hunt are really what made that stand out. Mm. Um, and doing it with a compound is different.
0: Right. And That's um, kind of what I meant. Was it different for him with his, his first one with the compound, I guess?
1: yeah like and unless you've hunted with a compound and and i know there's probably many listening out there who do there's probably many who have not unless you've done it you know when when you come to full draw and and you're looking through that peep site and it's just that surreal moment at least for me where you don't hear anything the world is standing still um i guess figuratively but typically the animal is not so you you know times moving on but it's just man it's it's a crazy feeling and i could tell he definitely felt that it was it was cool just to watch it all
0: unfold mm. yeah that is yeah. really cool that's an exciting story and that's a that's a really cool way to in, to to get yourself in on uh, on the first kill on your own property there's something special when you put it together on your own place when you see it all come together because you, you overthink everything you have um, expectations and uh, game plans and thoughts of how things are going to go down. So for something like that to occur and it it sounded like it didn't go anywhere the way the near, like near the way you would have expected it to that, that just makes it even better.
1: Right. Yeah, no, it's, man plans, God laughs, right? You know, that's, yeah, that's kind of how life goes, but yeah, it was, everything went wrong and everything went right at the same time. So it was really cool. But again, you know, had nothing else happened last year, that would have been it. Um, but fortunately, you know, time went on of the eight or nine shooter buck that we had on camera. Um, they were one by one. You know, I've got a pretty decent relationship with, with many of the neighbors and, you know, even those, I don't talk to the ones I do those, you know, one buck after another was, was hit, not recovered. Um, one was hit by a car. Um, just goofy things were happening. These deer, you know, if, if I was looking at a list, I'm crossing them off pretty quick. So it it got to the point where, you know, my stomach's turning over. Um, eventually I get, you know, rumors that some of these deer were recovered by other hunters. Um, and, you know, they either apply a tag or reach out to the game commission to keep their axe. And, you know, I'm just, it's heartbreak after heartbreak. And, you know, again, not to get caught up in, in harvesting something being the, the only, um, outcome that matters. But, you know, when the prospects start dwindling, it's, it's harder to drive yourself to, to go out there and want to chase. Oh, no, for sure. But there's one, there's one nine pointer, um, is about a hundred and well, um, I actually got to measure this deer. He's 136 inch nine pointer. So it's a good deer. Um, and I really think he was a three year old. He just, I've never seen a deer move that much and that often and just visible during the daylight. And I kept saying this deer is never going to make it. Well, I played cat and mouse and every time I go somewhere, I expected him to be, he showed up somewhere else, always in the daylight. Just, I, I don't know how he lived as long as he did. Um, ended up getting pictures of that buck through the last Friday of rifle season. Um, And then he was picked up dead during shed season. So he met his demise somewhere. I, to the life of me, don't know if it was a hunter or not, but I spent a lot of my season chasing that deer and then he kind of vanished. So I was down to a select few that I knew of and rifle season rolls up. I, again, we, we bought this farm and kind of anticipated, uh, it was a farm that wasn't supposed to be hunted, but we, we kind of knew that the neighbors had been, um, stumbling through for years. And, you know, the very first Saturday and and then that following Sunday, I felt like that's all I was doing was, was trying to redirect folks who, you know, would walk past the yellow signs and the purple paint and, Yeah, I I can write a dissertation on it. I'm not going to get into the details of it. Um, I was, of course, made out to be the bad guy because, well, I'm paying a mortgage and taxes on a property and I don't want anybody else on it. But um, it it got wild to the point where I had a pickup truck drive up almost to where my stand was, see me do a donut in the farmer's planted field and take off. It just got it, it completely put a sour taste in my mouth, you know. I went from being out there wanting to, to be hunting to just being in survival mode. Um, I think the first 45 minutes of season, I heard like 62 shots. Mm. Um, it was, I've never been more scared to be in the woods and like, that's, that's not to, to go back to my original story of my first podcast. That's what made me walk away from hunting for some years was, was it being like that? you know, where you're seeing deer running scared, I just, it, it's not how it's supposed to be in my eyes. Um, so it was, it was a really rough couple of first days. And I was out by myself because my wife was home with our daughter. So, you know, I'm i am addressing trespassing on one corner of the property, watching it happen on another, and it honestly, just kind of felt helpless. Fast forward, we get through the first week, the first Saturday rolls up and, and it's supposed to downpour all day. So I'm driving out expecting to do the exact same thing um, and, you know, just kind of police things at, at the farm. And for some reason, I was like, you know what? No, it's starting to drizzle already. I don't think folks are going to be out. I'm going somewhere else. So one of the other properties that, that we have access to hunt, um, I had a, a good buck showing up that we had a lot early in the summer. He's a really cool looking deer. Um, he was not... On my my hunt list early, I uh, to be honest, probably three year old, um, but I knew he was around, and, and I wouldn't have told you that's the DR is going in after, but we didn't have any other trail cam pictures of any other deer in this area, so you know I think subconsciously that was the DR is going to hunt, so went in and you know it's it's starting to crack daylight, um, and in Pennsylvania if anybody from the game commission is listening to this, we get too much time to hunt in the morning and not enough in the afternoon by those shooting light tables, at least in 5C Berks County. Um, and I will, I will bring somebody out and show them what I'm talking about, but it was pretty darn dark and I'm looking at my watch and going, man, it's shooting time. And I heard some deer, you know, just inside the wood line for me. Um, the first one was very light footed you know, kind of skipping and hopping and, and prancing. And the second one was that very distinct, you know, this is a buck. Uh, just stomp, stomp, stomp. And right like that, the footsteps stop. And, you know, if you ever watch any like the Deer Society stuff and the, they're trying to sell you the extinguisher grunt call and they do that buck growl with it, I've always thought I have never heard that sound in the woods. That would never work. Well, that's the sound this deer made. Mm. He just bellowed. And I was, I was shook, man. Like, it was probably only 30 yards from me. And I'm like, man, I don't know what this deer is, but that's. You know, that's not an adolescent deer. That's that's a big boy, and he's not happy.
0: That's an intense sound. I'll never forget. I've heard it a few times, but the one that rings in my ears the most, I like can still hear to this day. About five years ago, we were hunting a deer collectively, and I was sitting in a stand. It was like 25 mile an hour winds. And 4.30 in the afternoon before the time change, I look up in this hardwood cut, and I see this number one big five-and-a-half-year-old target deer going through the woods, and I could hear him doing that exact same thing from over a 100, and probably 150 to 200 yards away, and it was just that loud, and I could hear it, hear it. And the, the funniest part about it was the next day, one of us shot that deer, and knew the deer was coming because he did that exact same thing, that loud distinguish, and he came up into bow range. So I know what yeah. you're talking about, and it is an, an insane sound that is so intense. For you to have it at 30 yards, I can only imagine. Well, and it, it's
1: dark, too. Like, that was the, the other wild part about it. And it was a rainy day. So, again, you know, it's probably 15 minutes into shooting hours. Um, It's, it's dreary and overcast, but I can't really see much of anything. So this deer is close and you know, the, the noise you made and obviously we're not deer, but it was like that, but just drawn out. Like if I tried to do this with a grunt call, I think I'd run out of breath. So homeboy had some pretty good lungs on him, but he walked in the woods and just let it rip. And, and then I could hear him work in a scrape. And as all this is going on, you know, it probably unfolds over 10, 15 minutes. Like it's starting to get more light, starting to get more light. And, um, eventually starts working. I'm, I'm turned around facing the tree in this scenario. And, uh, he works from the right side of the tree to dead behind the tree where I can't see him. And he comes out on the left side of the tree. And when he came out on the left side of the tree, there's a little bit of an opening there where, um, the sun was, was starting to peek up through and I could actually see. And this particular deer has a uh, 10 and an 11 inch brow time. So he's very recognizable. And I saw that immediately. I'm like, Oh, I know who this guy is. So, I go back and forth with myself for about five seconds and and generally my rule of thought is if you have to ask yourself if you should harvest a deer the answer is no um in this particular case I think I just had such high hopes on some of these other deer um still making it still surviving that I I tried to talk myself into and out of it um but I really thought this deer was three years old I wanted to see him live and um, I broke every rule in the book um got on him shot and as i shot i i don't take many deer with a rifle i was out with a rifle in this case i should have just taken the bow out because he was in bow range but um i squeeze the trigger and i don't hear anything nothing i don't hear the deer run off i don't hear anything i don't see him where he was standing so i'm just completely mind blown i don't know what happened So naturally, I I call my wife. She's always my first call. Um, I'm just perplexed. And she's trying to calm me down, Um, kind of go back and forth with her for a little bit. And it's starting to rain. So I'm like, man, this is rough. It's still pretty dark. I don't know what blood I'm going to find, if I'm going to find blood, but I got to go now. So I get down, I start looking and I can find nothing, nothing at all. And I'm just I'm so perplexed by this. and I'm starting to beat myself up. I'm like, man, how, that was a chip shot. That was a bow shot. And you took it with a gun. Like, what, what are you doing here, goofball? So eventually I, I decide I'm just going to walk out to the, the cut ag fields just to, for the sake of walking, just to see if I can maybe pick up blood out there or, or some, because that was the direction he was facing. So I walk out, I'm, I'm walking back and forth and I'm, I'm actually talking to my wife on the phone, trying to develop a game plan because she's got to get coverage for our daughter, um, to come out and help. And, uh, right like that, I look and I'm like, that's either a fertilizer bag out in the middle of the field or that's a white belly. Um, and yeah, you know, I start getting close and I realize it was him. I could see the antlers sticking up in the air. So that was the, the second time we've actually, as a family, been able to fill all the buck tags. And that's a tough thing to do. Like you think about filling one buck tag in Pennsylvania, trying to fill three and trying to do it on mature deer is, is a, a tough thing. Um, and, you know, it was, again, it's the second time we've been able to do it. So it was a really bittersweet moment. Again, I, I do wish that deer could have made it one more year. He was all but 130 inches. Um, real cool. He was like 23 or 24 inches wide and he had the long brows. He was a cool deer. Um, and I don't regret um, taking the opportunity. At, at, you know, I think we talked about last time when you pull that trigger, it's something that, that you can't take back. Or right. when you release that arrow. You know, so you've got to be sure of it. And I was sure of it at the time. I I talked it back and forth myself. And, you know, in my heart that felt like it was the right thing to do. But it's just a moment where I could step back from the stress and be out that morning. And even with the rain starting to fall, it gets just that surreal peace that comes over you. And if, if I look back on any of the mature deer I've harvested or any of the major successes I've had in the woods, that's a precursor for me. And I'm not saying it is a precursor for everybody. I'm sure sometimes some of the best you're harvested are in the midst of just complete chaos. But for me, it's kind of always after that that period of peace and release and just sitting back and and appreciating the hunt for what it is. And after that first weekend of, of stress, like it was just a great moment for me. And it wasn't long after I just took that deep breath and started embracing being outside, being in creation that things started happening. So that was a really cool year. You know, that was kind of the icing on the cake for us. We we harvested a a number of dough too. So we had a, a good full freezer coming into this year. And, well, this year didn't work as well. Um, I don't know time-wise if we have time to get into it or if, if you want to interject with anything because I haven't talked a lot.
0: No, lay it on, man. I, I'm I'm enjoying this conversation because um, you're going through highs and lows here, and, and you're going through it and you're doing it with family. like the You're talking about your deer. Um, I read a post, um, and, and this is going to sound funny because I don't read social media a lot, but I read a post, and it was somewhere along the lines of, he's not the big, um, you know, it was a quotation of he's not the biggest followed by meat in the freezer and the just, you know, going through this whole uh, theoretical um, philosophical conversation of justifying the deer you shoot. And I'm not going to lie, there was a time in my life where um, I would have done that or um, I've been fortunate and I look at all the deer that I've been fortunate enough to, to take in my life, and I've, I've never regretted any buck that I've shot. Um, I've regretted a little couple times when I messed up and thought I was shooting a doe and shot a button buck. That's a little bit different, but I mean, you know, the, the big hype of shooting a buck, I've never done that, and, and but I have been one where... I would say, oh, this deer needs another year or, you know, why would somebody shoot this and stuff? And it all comes down to it. At the end of the day, it was, it was exactly what you had said prior to your story of your buck is it's it's going out and having fun. Like talking about Brandy um, hunting hard uh, this past season and grinding it. And, uh, you know, I think about that and doing what has fun. If it's, If it's fun shooting a buck and filling your tag, then that's all that matters, and it doesn't matter and I know you know that, but i'm I'm reiterating that because I think it's so easy to get lost in the 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 weeds, so to speak with it and, and while I love bow hunting, I think bow hunting is an awesome thing. I personally think bow hunting makes you more guilty of that because you have because of the time you have with the deer. I don't know if that makes sense or not.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a relationship builder. And, and I guess, you know, if you listen back on my last podcast, and kind of to go back and what I said a little bit ago, you know, when I first started hunting, I, I started hunting as early as I could. And, you know, for you and I, that was at age 12. Um, prior to that, I'd go and sit in the woods with my dad a handful of times with, you know, without uh, a firearm or a bow or anything just to sit with him. Um, but it was, you know, from 12 on, pretty much a rifle hunter not that i didn't shoot bow i shot archery competitively as a kid um but that always seemed to be during football season and we just didn't have the time mm. so it was a lot of where we hunted was a lot of heavy hunting pressure a lot of deer running for their lives a lot of, of, of drives being pushed by neighbors and it's man i, I gotta say there are some rifle openers that if you could look at the, the opening scene of saving Private Ryan and replace the, the people with deer, I swear that's what it looked like. Like it was traumatizing. I hated it. Um, and that was probably a terrible analogy. I apologize to anybody out there, um, who might be a veteran and be offended. You know, we live in a society that, you know, you don't want to offend anybody at any time. Um, certainly in that regard, but no, it was just, it, it put a bad taste in my mouth. And I, I got to a point eventually where I walked away from hunting and then I came back in on my own terms as an archery hunter. Um, after picking up some equipment and completely changed the way I look at things because, you know, you see the animals, you, you build those relationships. Um, and honestly, one of the hardest things for me now is pulling the trigger on, on any animal, even an animal that I've watched, you know, if it's a, a buck, I've watched mature. That's even a hard thing sometimes. Um, and in most scenarios, I'm better off if I don't have time to think about it. Cause if I do. Man, there, there's such a range of emotions there. And, and maybe you've gone through that, too, and maybe somebody listening has, too. Um, and sometimes I like second-guess myself. Like, man, are you going to be able to continue to do this as a hunter? And and the answer is yes, because I love it. But um, that that harvest sometimes is, is such a bittersweet thing. It's just different.
0: Right, anyway. right. Now, you were able to harvest, up fantastic buck this year. And I'm, I'm curious to hear about that, but you you opened by saying this year was a little bit more difficult. I'm curious as to why, what made it a little bit more challenging compared to other years.
1: Yeah. So let me also just say, you know, we live in five, if we live in five C we hunt five C Berks County area. Um, so we get a jump on most of, of the rest of archery hunters. We get a, a two week head start, and I will say those two weeks um, over the past couple of years, we've come to realize those two weeks are pivotal for us.
0: Absolutely. Those
1: two weeks are your best opportunity at hunting a buck intently um, with intention to harvest them and being able to, to pattern them. You get into, you know, October and those patterns break. You get into late October testosterone levels spike those bucks start to roam they change ranges um you get into november all bets are off and nobody has any idea and again i'm not saying you can't hit the hot seat in november but you may have a property where you don't see deer all year long in november it gets hot but you don't know what you're hunting it's just for us we've we've come to realize that those early couple weeks are so valuable um and a lot of, a lot of it boils down to food sources, you know, in those early couple of weeks, you might be hunting acorns. Um, you might be hunting ag. It depends, you know, if, if beans are green or if they're turning yellow. Um, you know, there's a lot that it boils down to, but I'll say, we, we've learned a couple of things over these past few years. I run a ton of cameras. Um, I may have joked in the past and said my cell camera bill is close to my truck payment. I don't think I'm kidding. Um, it's it's valuable. And especially when you don't have the time to commit, honestly, not having the time to commit and going more towards cameras than just personal experience is, is a big part of the reason I think I've been able to be successful because it used to be, if I had an opportunity to be in the woods, I was going to be out there and I wasn't smart enough about doing things the right way that I'm, I'm sure I boogered things up more than I did good. Right. Um, so sometimes that restriction on time helps you to just sit back, let the cameras do your work for you. Um, and again, you know, there's something to the nostalgia of, of grinding it out and doing it yourself, but there's also something to the efficiency of, of modern day hunting. And I think when it comes to herd management, I'd make the argument that cameras and the efficiencies they bring are, are huge because it allows you to hunt, you know, a certain age class of deer, if that's what you choose to do.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um,
1: it allows you to know where there's, where's deer and, you know, do your doe, uh, management as well. You know that's that's pretty valuable stuff, but being able to run all these cameras, I think you know there's times I have twenty to thirty of them in the woods um over a handful of properties and having access to you know this farm now and, and some new property we've begun to to notice you know that these patterns emerge and I remember being a kid and um my uncle Wayne actually at one point owned the one farm that I, I hunt. Um, and he made the comment at one point, every third day, there's a big buck that shows up on that hillside. And we laugh at him. And to this day, I think Wayne has four or five buck on his wall that are 150 or better. And he did that. He's, he's 90 plus years old now and he still goes hunting. Um, but he did that in a a time where hunting big deer wasn't a thing necessarily or a focus. So. You look at it now and you go, okay, he said every third day there's a big buck that walks across the hillside and you start to understand when you run a lot of cameras and connect dots that these deer do move in, I don't want to say circles, it's more ovals. You know, we'll have deer that'll have a very north-south range. We'll have deer that have a very east-west range, some that kind of move, you know, on a diagonal. But if you connect the dots, you kind of realize hey, they're at this camera, eventually, you know, the the middle of this range, there's a camera in the middle that they hit more often because they're crossing that twice as often. Um, But if you're at the end points of the range, sometimes they're there for a day or two in a row. So as we started to do our scouting, I think these past two years, we started to connect those dots a little bit more. And if you're seeing a deer and they're purely nocturnal, I'm here to tell you the deer's not nocturnal. The deer's up in the daylight. It's probably just taking a while to get to you. Mm. You know, that deer may be up an hour before it gets dark, but by the time he gets to you where you're hunting, at that point, yeah, it might be dark. Um, Or if it's a deer that you're getting at 1 a.m., that deer's betting pretty far from where you're set up. And, you know, you might be towards the middle of a range or, you know, you might be in a, a good position. But you're not near the bed and if you're really trying to hone in on a deer you've got to have an idea you know where those deer like to bed and they don't bed in the same area all the time you know there's a social media post circulating this past year you know, you know where he beds okay do you know where all like 47 of them are and it was some some data that they tracked um where deer bedded in different locations to so know that but you know although history might not repeat itself it, it does tend to rhyme And these deer do develop habits and they might not bet in the same spot all the time, but they'll bet pretty close. So, you know, to develop a game plan like that and start to understand the relationship of where these deer like to sleep, where they like to spend their daylight hours, that matters a lot. So, you know, as we got into this year, you know, that was one thing we learned a lot. The other thing we learned a lot is how important buck to doe ratio is. And we hunt an area where we have numbers. Um, and we, we see a lot of deer. Um, And we'll have access to these deer, like I said, early in the early season, but when it starts to get close to breeding, we don't get pictures of mature buck. You know, I know a lot of guys who love hunting the rut because they see buck all the time. We don't. And I think last year hunting our farm and trying to figure things out over there, it became, it became apparent to us. You know, there was an evening set, I I very distinctly remember, and, and the deer that I saw that evening was actually the deer I took this year um but I'm sitting there and over a hollow and I started watching these doe pile out about an hour and a half before dark and there's probably a dozen doe that pop out and they're all feeding in the beans and half hour goes by and here comes this buck and it, it was a buck most folks I think would be tempted to harvest and last year I made the decision, it was an easy decision to make because we had so many other good ones, then no, that one's off limits. Um, And I had a lot of opportunities at him, but um, needless to say, he comes up, starts feeding with the doe. Shortly thereafter, two young buck come out, and this larger buck that fed out with the doe just postures up. All the doe run directly to him, and the two inferior buck kind of work theirself to the, the flank, so to speak, and they kind of disperse and he keeps them at bay. And you start to realize that these doe, it, when you've got that many of them, they'll cling to and bet around a mature buck because they don't want to be chased by the freshman. You know, think about it in like a social context. You know, when you're a freshman in high school and there's the, the pretty senior girl, what stops you from going up there and, and wanting to flirt with that girl? Well, probably because she's dating the big old football player. You yeah, know, it's like a it's, lot like
0: you and me in high school. I used to stay away. You were a little bit older. I'd stay away. You were the big tough guy on the football team, right?
1: That's exactly <laughs> how it was, Mitch. No, but uh, when you've got an imbalance that heavy, you start to realize that these dough will literally bet around your mature buck. Those mature buck don't have to get on their feet. They got all the breeding they want right around them, and all they have to do is chase off the little guys in return. So, you know, that was another big finding, and it's it's definitely shifted our focus. We've taken a lot of dough the last couple of years here, and we aim to continue that. But, um, you know, coming into this year, we really wanted to take advantage of that early season. Um, and there was, we did not have numbers. Of the eight or nine shooters the year prior, uh, we didn't have any survivors, um, at least as far as, as I know. Um, there's one or two that went on the count report, but we never saw them again. And I'm assuming that they are gone. So, you know, we roll in and there was two buck that we said in the early preseason, these are no doubt shooters and some that, you know, made us scratch our heads a little bit. But, um, very first morning I go to my first morning stand. I'm sitting there, I watch the sun come up and I was getting my gear together the night before and something in the back of my head said, as I was putting all my, my stuff in my bino pack, you should check your rangefinder. We have a spare rangefinder we normally use when we're shooting in the backyard and such. And I was just like, nah, it's it's good. I barely used it last year. It was brand new last year. So that's a spoiler alert. Next morning, um, sun starts to come up. The very first deer I see is this beautiful 10-point. Comes right up over the knoll, the exact same way Junior did um, a couple of years prior. I had major deja vu. I grabbed from my rangefinder because he's coming right at me the same way Junior did, but where Junior came to the bottom of my tree, he hung uh, a left and starts working a scrape. Grab my bow, go to click my rangefinder, nothing happens. The battery's dead. Now I've sat this stand enough where I've sat there and I've ranged different trees. And I'm like, okay, I know how far that one is. I know how far that one is. And this is early. This is first light. So I I had a pretty good feel. This one tree ahead of me is about 28 yards. He's four or five yards beyond that, probably 32, 33 yards. He's working a scrape. There's a Y tree right in front of him. And literally his vitals are sitting right in the middle of the Y. So I'm like, oh man, this isn't. This can't be gift wrapped anywhere. This is surreal. This is crazy. So I go draw my bow and I'm, I'm looking through the peep and I can't quite line up the, I always line up the outer ring of my, my site, the housing with the inside of the peep. And I can't make that relationship quite work right. And as I'm trying to negotiate it, he takes another step. And the whole time in the back of my head, I'm second guessing the yardage. I'm going, no, that, that tree's not 28 yards. It's, you know, I'm, I'm second guessing myself. So he continues to walk and I go, okay, if he goes another couple yards, he's in that opening. That opening cannot be more than 25 yards. That's close enough. Margin of error isn't going to matter as much. I feel pretty good about that. Well, he took a left, went down over the hill and never made that opening. So I'm sitting there kind of beating myself up all morning. Had a lot of action, saw a lot of young buck, you know, actually had three of them bed within 20 yards of me. Um, It was just a really cool morning. So, um, morning expires. Eventually I go out, same story. My wife goes out in the evening, um, where she was going, we had the other shooter, uh, on camera all summer, all summer. He was so religious. He's six I- I've never seen a deer stick to a pattern as much as that one did. And we actually nicknamed him sticky because he stuck to a pattern. So I, I told her, you know, sticky's going to, to show up. Right around six 6.30. He's there every day. It's like clockwork. Um, so she goes out with my stepson. They're in the tree. And young Buck comes in around 6 o'clock. They're watching him. Right like that, Sticky comes in. Exactly on schedule. Long story short, didn't quite work out. Um, and if she's on your podcast, I'm not going to ruin her story for you. Um, but it was just crazy that we had two shooters. And within us... Us both hunting a half hour. We had opportunities at those two shooters. So something about the homework we've been doing must be paying off. Either that or we got extremely lucky. Mm -hmm. But year goes on. I end up seeing, um, that same buck I saw that morning two more times. Um, I thought he was a nine pointer. He ended up being a 10 pointer. So I'd been calling him nifty. Um, Nifty nine, and I saw him a couple more times. He was—I want to say—he—he wasn't necessarily the most cautious deer, um, but at the same time, he—he hung to corners and edges where he—he also wasn't exposing himself a lot, so he was visible but not necessarily shootable, if that makes sense or huntable. Certainly. Yeah, so um, he and I go back and forth a little bit, and um, I kind of had a very good idea where his core area was, you know, again, cell phone uh, cameras, you know, we get him as far as our farm, Um, we get him um, down to another property we hunt, but 80% of the time, we're getting him on cameras um, on the property where I saw him the opening morning, so I, I knew that was his core area. So fast forward, October 23rd rolls up. Um, it's a perfect storm. So the weekend before, I think that was a Monday. Um, I'd have to look back at my calendar. But the weekend before, my wife um, got to hunt and she went out. We normally kind of alternate, you know, whose turn is it to go out? But she got to go out a couple of sets in a row. And um, one of the deer she was after at that point showed up on camera. And she's like, it's your turn. But, you know, this this deer's on camera. And I said, it's okay. Go after him. I'm going out on Monday, and I'm going to take Nifty. Um, and she just kind of like brush it off, and you know, I did too because I thought I was completely full of it. Well, <laughs> she goes out. Um, lo and behold, on Monday, the the cell cameras start going off, and it's not what we expected. It's the farmers harvesting the cornfield right next to where I wanted to go hunt him. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, we've got the perfect wind, we've got rising pressure a cold front just came through and they're cutting the cornfield. So I'm sitting there all day at work and, you know, I'm texting her saying, Hey, I'm still good to go out tonight. Right. And she goes, yeah, it's your night. Oh my gosh, they're cutting the cornfield. Like this can't be any better. And it's one of those, it was one of those nights where everything went so perfect. You're like, there's no way I'm going to go in there and actually be successful. But, um, well, it, it ended up working out for me. Um, Got home, I was changing, actually, I had a buddy of mine who was texting me some camera pictures of a buck he was chasing, and we were formulating a game plan on, on how he should hunt that deer, and I told him, I'm like, hey, I'm calling a blitz tonight, like, I'm going to a stand I don't normally go to, it's it's right in the, the, the bedding, there's been combines running right next to it all day, I'm hoping that's you know, enough pressure to push this deer out for sure so I can get in. And I'll see the corn edge that way. If they're out feeding tonight, I'm going to have a shot. And he's like, well, good luck. So I get in to the stand. And again, it's just one of those like everything worked perfect. I got in quietly. I had enough wind to break up my sound going through this corn fodder. Um, I was up on stand maybe 15 minutes and the deer started rolling out. Well, I say deer rolling out, man. They were rolling out in every direction. If mm. you've ever you know hunted a fresh cut cornfield you want to talk about a dinner bell. Um, and and the deer were were in this cornfield a lot just for safety during the course of the year too. So, you know, I, I get on stand and again, not a stand I normally hunt. Um, because of that, I honestly didn't prune around it as much as maybe I should have. And the day prior or the weekend prior to that, we actually took, um, I think three doe that weekend. So we were on doe patrol and that was the first deer I killed out of my saddle. And that was kind of a surprise set. I found a tree, climbed it with my saddle. Um, I've hunted out of my saddle a lot of times, but I've never been successful. I shot a doe and I just remember thinking like, man, that was awesome. I could hide behind that tree, break up my outline. You know, I can maneuver and it was an offside shot. So that, that, um, having the tether against me just made me feel more stable. So where I went into a hang on here, I actually took my platform and my saddle and I saddled on the backside of the tree thinking I'm going to be covered in deer, but having that mobility to maneuver around the tree, it might be helpful. So that's exactly what I did. And I'm glad that I did because I was covered in deer and I could, you know, maneuver myself to the backside of the tree and really hide my silhouette all night. So I think I saw every deer in the County except the one that I was after. And (laughs) it starts to get, it starts to get a little dark. And I was thinking like, man, everything was perfect tonight and it just didn't work out. And that's fully what I expected. Cause it was just too perfect. And uh, I'm looking kind of down to my left, down into this, this, uh, little washway um, against the wood line. Cause I'm hunting an outside elbow right in a point. And I'm looking down into this hole and I just see an antler and I, and I instantly knew the deer. I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's him. And he's walking right up this wood line to the point that I'm sitting in. So I'm thinking no way he's going to keep coming. Needless to say, like I'm in my saddle. I need a little time to maneuver because this is going to be an offside shot too. Um, So I'm right-handed. If I'm facing the tree, it would have been on the right side of the tree. And if you've hunted from a saddle, that's, that's a trickier shot to make. Right. So I got to maneuver my bow, you know, up and over my tether. I'm kind of twisting myself. By the time I got positioned, he was stepping into the opening. Um, I draw, and this year I kind of bought into the whole heavy arrow, high FOC, single bevel, um, broad head. And I'll tell you, I think you can shoot through steel with that setup. And I know VPA is one of your sponsors, and they make a, a heck of a, a broad head. Um, but I think when you switch to that type of setup, you have to reprogram your brain to be more comfortable shooting tight to the shoulder. Um, mm. in, in the past, I've always come back off the shoulder. So two schools of thought, you've got a mechanical head, you've got a lot of margin of error. If you hit back, you have a, a fixed, like a single bevel setup or a heavy arrow. You've got a lot of margin of error. If you hit forward. Um, so, you know, flip a coin, where are you going to hit the deer? I guess your aim can influence that and and I guess I haven't necessarily made that adjustment in my head yet. That's a anyway, big
0: part of it too, absolutely.
1: Yeah, so it's it, you you have to reprogram your brain and um definitely something I need to work on for next year. But deer's coming from my left to my right. Again, I'm shooting on the right side of the tree. And mixed school of thought on this. Most folks I talk to will stop their deer. Um you know, the, the patented math or, or whatever sound you like to make, um, or whistle or whatever it is. Historically, I have not done that. And, and the reason I have not done that is I have seen it go the other way where that deer instantly is on full alert. And then rather than dealing with them taking a step, you're dealing with them ducking. I'd rather have them moving predictably rather than unpredictably. So, you know, in those kind of scenarios, as long as it's pretty steady, I've taken a lot of deer not stopping them and you know, you can cuss me up and down and tell me I'm wrong, but I, I haven't lost a deer to this day doing it that way. So uh, maybe this last one changed my school of thought because as I let the arrow go, I thought I hit him perfect. Well, not perfect, maybe back a little bit um, back enough that I didn't want to go after him right away. So let go of the arrow. I would say it'd probably be the, the perfect shot on a bear middle of the middle. If, if that's the school of thought you're, you're a bear hunter. Tell me if I'm wrong. Is it the middle of the middle?
0: Well, the the thing with the, uh, I've heard that saying, and that's a whole can of worms there. Bear vitals. If you like the bear that I killed this year, I kind of paid attention in my excitement a little bit when I gutted it to see how far back the diaphragm sat and the diaphragm does sit back a little bit more on a bear. And I think their lungs sway back. Um, and you don't have like you know on a whitetail and a lot of ungulates you have that very defined vital V where the shoulder blade kind of pinches forward to the knuckle where that that humerus and the scapula meet and then it juts back into you know what I would just call the pocket rocket you know the, the elbow whatever you want to call it I forget the technical term but you know there's that V there and a bear has that but it's it's nowhere near as pronounced as a V it's 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 more it's not a straight line up and down, but there's there's a little bit more of a bow. So you know, a lot of people, if you if you shoot forward on a bear, um, you can find your scalp getting too close and hitting that that bone there. Um, but I, I mean, the 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 vital V. I mean, when when you look where the heart and you know the the vital uh, you know, the the pump station, I guess, so to speak, it, it sits right there in that pocket of forward. It's just the, the lungs and, and bear, the other thing too, I mean, they, they don't die nearly as hard as a whitetail, in my opinion, if you put it in their chest cavity. So even hitting it back, you know, popping that diaphragm, maybe even liver, I've seen them die very short and quickly, but uh, okay. yeah, long, long winded there for, for what you're talking about on a whitetail there. But so your, your deer, you said you hit just a touch back.
1: Yeah, so again, I didn't stop him, so I ended up releasing the arrow, and it did hit a, a touch back. Um, I, I guess I didn't hold as tight to that elbow as I should have, given the, the scenario. And again, it's a shot I've taken a lot of times, and you know, I'll blame myself to this day, you know, for for not either stopping the deer or giving him a little bit more. But I, you know, it was a good enough shot. I'm like, man, how how I just far got was him. the shot, Dustin? if I told you it was 12 yards, I might be stretching it. Gotcha. Um, of it's crazy of, of all the mature deer I've taken. I don't know if I've shot one over 20 yards. Nice. Um really thinking I should just pick up a trad bow and, and try to learn that because, and that's when I'll see one at 40, you know, but if, that's anyway. exactly right. So I, I, I call brand instantly and she can tell, she's like, hello. And I'm like, I stuck him. I, I stuck him, babe. Like, and she starts losing her mind, and I'm like, "We need to give it time." She's like, "I'm packing up the kids. I'm coming out. We're gonna go get him." And I'm like, "No, I didn't hear him crash. Like, I'm not sure he took off after the shot. His tail was kind of tucked. Like, you could tell he was hit hard, but it wasn't like it wasn't like that low where they're getting lower to the ground and eventually, you know, they they just expire. It wasn't that. It wasn't the heart shot where they're like." It's it, it just something about the way he took off Didn't quite look right to me And I'm replaying the shot in my head again and again and again I go I get my arrows covered in pink blood And I'm like oh okay I got along So um, I say listen I'm going to come home Talk to you a little bit um, We'll get uh, Her mom came over to watch Aylin And then we'll, we'll come back out So that's what we did And my dad ended up coming with and we find good blood for about 60 yards, then it gets to be really good, and I'm expecting to see a deer anywhere. And there's and it just stops. And, and we're looking back and forth, and eventually we kind of start grid searching, maybe more than we should have. Um, and no deer. And I'm just scratching my head and going, what is going on here? You know, this is not the way these stories are supposed to end. Like, what, where, what, what could have happened? Like, the, the arrow tells a story. The early blood looked pretty decent. Where's this deer? So we're kind of stomping around and just without any results. And eventually I call them both back. I'm like, listen, if he was in this immediate area, we would have found him. Let's back out before we do more harm than good. And we already did more harm than good. Um, judging by the, the eventual recovery. Um, let's back out. We'll come back in the morning. We can see, you know, it's, it's going to be, it was one of those nights where it dropped down, like in the thirties. Um, we had that cold front coming through. So we felt pretty good about it. So next morning, my dad meets up with me and, and we start our grid search. We still can't find any more blood past the last blood. And it was, it was evidently, it was, it was one of those spots where, you know, the deer stopped for a little while. So nothing's really adding up. Nothing's making sense. We walk pretty much every piece of ground that, that we're able to walk, um, in that general area. We, we grid search everything with, without any results. We probably started around nine. We finished maybe around one o'clock, maybe noon, somewhere in that neighborhood. And we leave just feeling so dejected. Like, I, I can't describe that feeling. Um, and I get home and, you know, we, we hunt small woodlots in the middle of ag, so it's not like we had a lot of ground to look at. And if he was in that woodlot that we were searching, we would have found him. So I end up calling um, a good friend of mine, the same one I talked to on my way out that evening, and he had a very similar scenario happen the year prior, where he ended up finding the deer two weeks later. It was the exact same scenario. Deer's walking, he didn't stop it, hit a little farther back than he should have, had blood, blood stopped they couldn't find the deer two weeks later he recovered it it wasn't a terrible shot it's just the the hole kind of plugged and they didn't quite go far enough so i'm calling him and he's like listen i'm not telling you what to do but here's what i would do i would pull open one of your maps draw a 500 yard circle go out and start walking again so i did that and as i circled everything i just, there's a couple patches maybe we didn't check. And I was like, there's no way the deer's in any of those. It, he's gotta be in that section of woods that we walked. So I was talking to my wife and she's like, if it was me, I'd still be out there. And she's right. If it was her, she would have still been out there. Um, so I went back out, started searching everything I searched, had a few big conversations um, with the man upstairs. Um, kind of just broke down a little bit. Um, Got to the point where I realized it was out of my hands. And, you know, I was going to walk a little bit more just to make sure. So I'm walking back and forth and actually, you know, uh, I was supposed to meet with some folks later that evening um, at one of the properties I can hunt. So I'm headed in that direction. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to loop up over these last couple small patches where, you know, that we inside the 500 yard circle, um, just to make sure. So I loop up around the first one, nothing. And I was like, I, I'd kind of given it up, but I had 20 minutes to kill till this meeting. So I started walking down a trail, um, essentially just for the sake of strolling and checking for other deer signs and whatnot. And I look to my right and some briars and I see a white belly. And I just like, I double and triple took at it. And eventually, I came to the realization well, it's definitely a deer. So, um, I go in after it and I, I didn't have to get far. I could see the rack and my gosh, um, I turned myself into a hamburger meat running through those briars, but there wasn't anything that was going to stop me from getting from, to that deer. <laughs> and, uh, um, an emotional mess. I, I called my buddy, thanking him for telling me to draw the circle. I called my wife just losing my mind. um, It was, you know, it was just one of those kind of surreal experiences, ended up being my best buck to date. Um, The crazy part about it is shortly thereafter, uh, my dad sent me a picture. He'd been out shed hunting the winter before and said, hey, I found this antler. I'm pretty sure it's your buck. And I looked at the, the picture he sent me. I said, no, I know that deer. That deer had great G2s. He had weak G3s. I saw him religiously the year before. Well, the deer I shot had really unique white markings. He had kind of these white swirls um, in his coat. And um, I went to send my dad the video of the buck that the that his shed belonged to. And I was like, no, this is the deer. And as I'm sending it to him, I go, oh, my gosh, that buck has the same exact white swirls. That was him. So to compare, he went from about a 100-inch – about a hundred inch eight pointer maybe you know give or take a couple inches to a 144 inch 10 pointer in the course of a year from age three to age four they say the average can
0: be 15 to 20 inches but i've seen them make that exact jump you're describing and it's pretty pretty amazing when they do
1: it it was insane man It, it really was um i just could never have put together that it was the same deer but yeah it was uh it was amazing hunt i ended up Take him up to Triple Trophy Taxidermy to meet Mr. Good, who you had on this podcast, and he was phenomenal. Just looking at his work. Uh, anybody listening out there, if you haven't checked out the page, look at it. Um, and if you see his stuff in person, it's even better. I do have um, to
0: make the uh, make make it known though that uh, if you want to get in there sometimes, you got to get in there with plenty of time, because I did see that he stopped taking deer partly through rifle season, because he got booked up.
1: Yeah, and kudos to him. I mean, it's... I know from my own line of work, like sometimes it's hard to say no to business when you run your own business, but he doesn't want to sacrifice quality for quantity. And yeah. that's, that's an important thing to note. Um, and you know, I know he talked about you know, pricing and stuff in in his, um, podcast, but look at the work. If you're ever going to get a deer mounted and and for years and years and years, I was so fortunate. I've got a taxidermist a mile and a half from my house. Um, who did phenomenal work. He was retired and still doing it. His, his, I got a ton of his work on my wall and my buck the year before with the long brow tines. He told me that's the last year I'm ever taking. Um, I'm done. You know, this is it. Um, and you know, that was kind of a hard thing for me because he'd done so much work for me. So I was searching for somebody new. But when I was up in that shop, I just looked at it all and went, man. I don't care what your prices are. This is phenomenal work and I want this is a deer I want to remember. So, um, definitely a good plug for him.
0: For for certain. So, I'm kind of curious when you found your deer, um, give us an idea. Like, do you feel you bumped that deer the night before and caused him to go there or or like how did th- where you found him relate to your last blood?
1: Yeah. So, where I found him was approximately 487 yards the way the crow flies from the shot um it was 420 some odd yards from last blood. we absolutely bumped him um where we looked where we went by default you know we've we've harvested a lot of deer on this property and they all kind of go to the same area there's a washed out gully with a a, like a a spring that pops out so when it's wet that spring's running and regardless of if the spring's running or not so it gets to the bottom it's always pretty wet and you hit a deer they're going to go down to that ravine it's really thick and there's water there um, that's where junior expired. I've taken plenty of does that have expired down there. So we have a pretty good idea. If this deer is dead, that's where he's at. Um, that's where we went that evening after we lost blood we, and we started, you know, wandering a little bit, which we should not have done again. If, if in doubt you should back out and I'll throw a disclaimer, this main deer we've recovered because we didn't back out and we did push him a little bit, but, um, anywho I'm, I would, bet my life that that's where that deer was because you connect the dots where we found him was a little farther than that where that stream travels under a roadway comes out the other side and, and piles into a creek um, there's eventually a drainage pond beyond that it wasn't far from that drainage pond so he the, the hit I hit liver um, on the entrance side I did clip lung on the far side now, I would have clipped both lungs, but again, shooting a two-blade single bevel on the entrance side, it hit vertically. Um, so I think that's the biggest reason I got behind the first lung. Um, I clipped the second lung because it had turned as it, single bevels rotate as they're going through and penetrating. So I, I did clip the second lung, um, but just barely. Um, and it did, you know, unfortunately, it's not the way I wanted to see that deer expire because I'm, I'm sure it took some time. But... Yeah, you know, the the story ended. Um, whether it was the perfect ending or one that you know maybe leaves you wanting a little bit more, you know. Um, there's plenty of movies that do both. Um, yeah, know, but there's it,
0: definitely a, a a lot of good things to take away from from your whole entire story. So I um uh, so 2022 season I first began tinkering with the with different arrow setups you know I've listened to other people talk about those arrow setups and how they do it and you know going to cut on contact heads and yada 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 and uh, one of the reasons that I never went to cut on contact heads was uh, ones I used in the past I couldn't always get them to fly well and that was on me that was my lack of knowledge and tuning and how to get the heads and maybe they were also lesser quality heads than what I'm shooting now and then another thing too is I always really really was not good at sharpening uh, steel and I wouldn't say that I'm good now but I'm much more improved I, I personally think sharpening is a pain in the neck and I, the, my least favorite thing about shooting solid steel heads is the fact that I have to touch them up and I have to sharpen them and it's time consuming and blah 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 it's a lot easier for me to just go put replacement scalpel blades in a broadhead, and you're done but the thing I was... Well that's
1: why that Omega head is so nice that lay flat is... Exactly. And that's genius and and you look at that head that's going to bust some bone I mean if, if you're confident you can hug that front shoulder on a shot that's a head to check out, so let's to try to plug your sponsors on here, but I know I had ordered the heads I got, um, which are not VPA heads, and then a couple weeks later, that broad head came out, and I looked at it and went, man, I feel like a goof. I just spent a pile of money, and that head right there would be so easy to sharpen.
0: Yeah, right. So you had pretty positive experience when you uh, started using yours?
1: Um from a, from a use
0: and 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 sharpening standpoint mainly but you you did shoot some other deer with them
1: yeah I get super nerdy when it comes to my bow tuning and setups like I'm down in my basement shooting bear shafts and trying you know every 20 grains a different head just to make sure I can find that bullet hole with a bear shaft um you know i I go to the nth degree with things and is it overkill absolutely um but anything that can shave that in one degree margin of error, I think is important. And I can, I can talk arrow spines. I i can talk point weight. I can talk FOC. I can talk that stuff with you know, anybody till the cows come home and we're going to lose some listeners if I start doing that because it gets ridiculous. But, um, yeah, I had the, the first, um, couple do I shot with them. Great experiences. I'm, I'm pretty sure I could shoot through steel with those arrows. Um, now, I was pretty heavy. I think I was right around 600 grains all in. Um Most of that was front loaded. So overkill for whitetail, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um But again, you know, you're shooting an inch and an eighth, an inch and a quarter head. You got to make sure you're not missing back because you don't have a lot of margin there. You know, Uh you shoot a, a big mechanical head. You've got some margin of error. Are you robbing yourself of penetration? Yeah. Um, I think till next year, I'm going to stick with the heavy arrow, uh, and I'm going to go back to using a a larger, uh, mechanical head. I have had great success with dead meats in the past. I'm going to probably go back to those. Um, but, and another thing that I did this year is I shot feathers as opposed to veins. Feathers weigh nothing, you know? So if you're really looking at FOC and you want to get nerdy about it, a feather weighs like a grain, um, a vein weighs seven, eight grains. So times three or four, depending if you shoot a three, three vein setup or a four fletch, um, you know, that adds up. That's a lot of weight on the back end of a shaft and it starts to matter. But again, you know, I can get as nerdy with it as you want. Um, simple high and low is first few deer I, I shot with a heavy arrow single bevel, uh, worked out. Um, the last one, I wish I had a bigger head on.
0: Right, right, and that's that's where I was getting at too. So when I started shooting them, I realized, and, and I knew this. Like I have actually, knock on wood, I've never ever hit one back. My I am always been a shoulder hugger. Um, I, you know, if I've ever made a bad shot, it was a little bit high or a little bit forward, and and that you know that's on me. So I, in in with that mindset, I knew. It would probably be a benefit if I would learn how to do this, but what I learned in the process of going through and, and tinkering with arrow tune tuning, you know, I, I shot a fixed blade for many, many years, um, you know, something that flew really well, kind of flew like a field point. I switched to a four-fletch. That really enhanced my broadhead flight, but when I started doing, digging into bear shaft tuning, which at one time I did not think was necessary, and now I don't think I'll tune a different way, because what I got from my broadheads blew me away to the point where I felt like I had so much confidence screwing that broadhead on. I It was like never before. I got to a point where I thought, why wouldn't I shoot something solid in the front? It just doesn't make sense to me. If you've got a well-tuned bow and you're a shoulder hugger, why wouldn't I shoot a broadhead that is tough, just hardcore tough. And there's a lot of other tough heads out there, but that that was just the the thing that resonated with me. So that that was kind of my experience and I, I'm glad you did. Now the you know the the walking and stopping and all that stuff like it, it it's all part of it. It happens. That's part of bow hunting.
1: Yeah, and again, I think it's it's reprogramming your brain. I I've right. always I've been a double lung guy my whole life. I, I don't try to shoot, you know, I don't hug the shoulders tightly as, um, as many do, but I've had a lot of success with deer that, well, they like, they don't go very far. Um, and I've always been in the school of thought actually one of the first mature buck I shot, I shot right through the heart and that was one of the longest track jobs we ever had. Cause it was a, a low heart hit, lost a ton of blood and it was just, um, he just had the will to keep going everything else I've I've ever shot has been through the lungs and they ever went far. So I kind of guess I had it twisted in my head and your experiences will, of course, um, influence you one way or another, but I've always had that double lung mentality where, Hey, I, I don't mess. I want this animal to expire as quickly as I can. Um, I don't want them to go far. I, I'm, I'm trying to hit double lungs. So, um, again, you know, that's part of my reason I, I haven't stopped deer historically because, stop a deer they're on alert you know for me instantly my aim point drops and I'm, I'm shooting more for for a heart shot if they don't drop you still have a heart shot if they do you got double lungs um i i'd sooner just try to you know go middle of the torso and and pop a hole through two lungs and have that animal pass and expire as as ethically and quickly as possible and i, I don't want to necessarily go on one of these um you know tracking missions so sure it's it's a reprogramming um, I think it's for somebody like you, absolutely a perfect strategy for me. Um, I may stick with it. You know, I have two bows. Uh, what I'll probably do is stick with the single bevels on one and go to a mechanical with the other. And depending if I'm hunting open fields or closed quarters, probably set them up a little bit differently. But, um, yeah, it's, it's to each their own. There is no right answer. You hit a deer where you're supposed to, and they don't go anywhere.
0: Yeah, I mean, what the heck? I'm looking at the the, uh, the bull elk that I killed in Montana in 2019. I shot that with a 405-grain arrow, and I got a complete pass through. It was sticking through the dirt. And and I, I say that I'll say the point is if you put the arrow where it needs to go, you can kill stuff with very light, and you don't need anything spectacular. And I'm not forcing that the, the setup that I shoot now down anybody. I don't care what you shoot. The biggest thing is that you're the most accurate you possibly can be, and you've got confidence. And that's why I shoot what I do and nothing more. Right, right. So I'm kind of curious. No, been, we've been rolling for, for quite a while here, and I want to be mindful of your time. But I, I did have a question when you were talking about um, some of the things you've learned, uh, the, the places you've been hunting early season. Um you, you, I remember you brought this up in the, the last podcast we did, and you brought it up today about your opening day sit, that you always do your traditional opening morning sit. So, you know, I, I know you follow a lot of uh, very good deer hunters, Um, throughout the years some of them we know personally some of them are you know influencers so to speak and there's a lot of people out there that have mixed reviews about early season morning hunting we've talked about this a ton and there's all sorts of different schools of thought now you're going in on a tradition and you know if it wasn't for that tradition I don't know where you would fall before that but now I'm curious with all the hunting experiences you've had on that opening morning do you sit any more mornings after that first sit during archery season based on what you've learned in that time in the tree?
1: Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that was actually something I wanted to bring up. If, if you were to tell me don't hunt mornings, um, before October or, you know, in, in early October or until the rut, I'm going to tell you throwing away some of your best opportunities. Um, you know, again, going, going to this particular stand, it, it's become a tradition because it's what I did when I was young and green and didn't know better. And the only reason it's not a great idea is because it's in a patch of woods that's, that's a mature oak population. There's typically a lot of acorns and it's on a, a flat where a lot of deer bed. So I, when I do go in, I go in incredibly early, way earlier than, you know, most would, um, but I'm getting in there to, to not booger things up. And that's, that's the, the biggest thing in the early season is if you are going to hunt those mornings, you need to make sure you're going to a spot where you're not going to booger things up. Um, that's, that's incredibly important. And I can't stress that enough because the second you start boogering these deers patterns up, well, then your advantage in the early season is is gone. But I will tell you early October is your best opportunity to hunt acorns Um, they sit a couple of weeks, at least in in my experience, they're not as favorable for deer. Um, the early, early season is your best opportunity to hunt patterns. And if you can get in and and you've got quality wind and, and you understand in my experience too, I think the thermals matter a little bit more when it's warmer out because you have more of a drastic change from more into evening, you start to get into fall and I don't think you have the, the same kind of thermal pool. Um, you know, you, I, I'm not a meteorologist or anything, but you know, I've, I've definitely walked down into a valley in the summertime and felt a crazy temperature difference. Um, so I, I think that matters. So no, I, I think here, here's my take on it. If you never hunt the mornings in the early season, you can 100% say you've never done any damage and it was a good idea. But if you did go out in some of those mornings and you were successful, it would change the way you look at it. At the same time, if you went out some of those mornings and you boogered a deer, you'd say it was the worst idea ever. So if you don't go, you're right, but you're probably missing out on some opportunities. You're never going to know if you're wrong. That's true of the entire season. If you never go out there, you're never going to booger anything up. So, um, so the but,
0: experiences you've had early, early season, I'm curious, how would you gauge the level of aggression that you're going in with the stands that you're choosing? And and I'm also kind of curious, how would you describe some of your stand locations when you think about bed-to-food patterns?
1: Yeah, so we're, we're not hunting beds early. You know, we're not hunting beds probably until things get hot and heavy, and I would say... I've killed so many of my good deer October 20th to October 28th in that, that one week. And, and that's, I'd label it as pre-rut. That's when you're going to start to see your testosterone hit. Um, and early in my hunting career, it's because I called a lot. Um, later in my hunting career, it's been because I hunted smarter. Um, I don't call a lot anymore. Very rarely do I call now. I just try to be where the deer are going to be. Um, but no, all, all things considered, uh, early season, I think a lot of times we're treading lightly. We're hunting edges. We're, we're trying to get to the food sources because you know, what we found is the deer are more likely to go to food sources and, and be there early, be there, you know, in at a time where we have the ability to, to hunt them yet. Um, you start to get later in the year and deer do get boogered up and, and bumped a few times. They're not going to hit that food plot. Um, with two hours of light remaining. They're, they're, they might be there at dusk, but they're not going to give you that opportunity. They're not going to be in that food plot first thing in the morning where you can sneak back into the, you know, between them and the bedding and, and cut them off. Um, they're going to be getting back into the woods by the time the sun's coming up. So you've got a window there where they're still being a little careless. And as long as you can be careful, there's a huge huge opportunity there that starts to dissipate pretty quickly as soon as you know the the day length starts to change and the hormones start to change um uh, you ask my wife the same question that early season is pivotal um if you can hit it while the getting is good and while things are predictable it makes your life so much easier
0: yeah, early season's a fantastic time i mean I've heard a lot of. People talk. My experience has been the same. Uh, the the first week of statewide season has probably been some of the greatest hunting experiences I've ever had, whether they were my own personal or ones that I've hunted with with you know friends and family and some of the the deer that we've harvested or, or witnessed and, and things like that it's always been that, and it's always been that bed to food so I'm kind of curious like the setting in which you're you're describing your hunting like you described your hunting area you know mixed ag things like that I'm, I'm kind of curious do you feel that the amount of diversity in food sources influence morning hunting in a positive way because the angle i'm coming from this is let's say you know i've hunted uh let's just take uh, my cabin for instance you know the, the the places that you hunt there that while there's the most food available opening week in october we don't have the great diversity i mean maybe you've got a big 50 acre cut and then you've got you know a a an Oak Ridge with some oaks or maybe there's some beechnut nut dropping, but it's, it's not as uh compartmentalized as maybe you would find in the Southern part of the state. And I'm wondering, does that, do you feel that orients deer movement in a manner that's advantageous for you to get to maybe a food source or a Ridge in between or something in the mornings?
1: Yeah. Um, I'd say, you know, in the areas we hunt, we're we're very blessed with the diversity uh, of food sources. We're blessed in a lot of reasons. And for the life of me, I, I, I continue to ask the question why we've been given all these blessings. And, and that's kind of my life's mission right now to figure it out and, and do something with it. But um, no, all, all things considered, you know, we, we hunt some ag land where there's a diversity of plantings. You know, uh, we, we have a, a lot of alfalfa uh, that stands pretty much year round. We've got, um, you know, some, some beans, uh, and some corn and we got some really good farmers in the area too, that know what they're doing. So we've got a good ag stand at the same time. You know, we've, we've got some diversity in mature oaks. Um, and you know, every couple of years we have that, that bumper crop of oaks. So we kind of play how we're going to hunt. Again, we do a lot of camera scouting, so that helps, but we, we orient ourselves depending on well i think the acorns play a big role in it you know, do we have acorns do we not have acorns um you know what what are the the deer going to first thing in the evening where are they coming from first thing in the morning and i'll tell you in our area that alfalfa man uh, alfalfa has got some pulling force that i i guess i never realized that it had mm. um Alfalfa's a big one and My findings are different than other people's findings. You know, I've talked before about um, different brassicas I've planted in food plots that the deer don't necessarily seem to love, and there's others they do. And I'll talk to other folks, and they'll tell me the exact opposite. So I think it really depends. I've heard some biologists say that it takes a couple of years for deer to develop a taste for certain things. So if you plant, you know, purple top turnips this year, and the deer don't really touch them. Well, maybe till next year they will because maybe they, they nibbled on them a little here and there. They didn't necessarily develop a taste for them. But till next year, you know, they'll like them a little bit more. Um, I don't know if there's validity to that or not. But, you know, uh, I don't know if I answered your question, Mitch. We we do have a high degree of, of diversity. The simple high and low is we do our homework. And I, I know there's, there's lots of folks who sit back and, you know, like you hear that Cameron Haynes quote, must be nice you know, um, and I'm here to tell you it is, but at the same time, it must be nice to, you know, be able to sit and enjoy your evenings in the summertime and not be out looking for deer. It must be nice to have, you know, Saturdays and Sundays where you're not taking cameras out in the woods and, you know, cutting lanes and hanging tree stands. It must be nice to not have to spend hours and tons of dollars planting food plots. Um, but those are the things we do. So you're darn right. It's nice when it all works out. And the high and low is if you do your homework. There's a lot of luck in this game, but those that do the work get lucky more than those that don't. And um, you know, at the same time, I, I think there's a lot to just enjoying the moment, regardless. Because sometimes that work doesn't pay off. And, and if if the harvest is your only measure of success, again, this game's gonna beat you up.
0: Good deal. Good deal, man. This has been a really fun, enjoyable conversation, man. I love the stories. I love the past two seasons. What you're drawn from it, what you're sharing with us. I love the early season talk. I mean, you're speaking my language because that is my favorite time. I've, you know, I think of all the deer, the bucks specifically that I've killed. Most of them have been in October, um, and I can. I can echo a lot of what you're saying. So I really enjoyed this conversation, Dustin, I, I thank you so much for, for taking some time coming out on the show. Um, I, I think we got to do it a little bit more often because man, we find ourselves we got so much to catch up on, and I think instead of doing that, we should just do this a little bit more frequently
1: well only if i'm successful and have something to tell you about right
0: <laughs> no i think going to be a boring I, podcast i think there's stuff to draw from regardless of how you view the success but no, man i again appreciate it congratulations on a on a great season i love what you're doing keep up the hard work on uh, on all the stuff you got going and uh, yeah, is there like if anybody's listening to this? Do you do you do any social media or anything like that that people would would be able to to kind of follow along see what you do or or anything like that?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I'm on social media, and to be honest, I think my wife and I have both refrained a little from putting everything out there that we used to, and um, I, maybe that's something we got to look at a little bit more. Again, you know, we've we've been dealt a lot of blessings, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out what I, I should be doing with it. And, um, you know, there, there's probably plenty of folks out there who will see what we're doing. And the biggest reason we stopped is just encroachment, um, to be very honest. And, um, you know, of course the, the small town rumor mill and all that nonsense that comes along with it. So we just, we started hunting for ourselves and and not for, we did it for love and not for likes, you know, it's that TV show or whatever, mm-hmm. um, not a TV show I'd qualify for, but anyway, um, no, we, we have social media, we don't put as much out there as we should and, and maybe maybe that's something I need to change, but um, I'd be happy to be back on here. You know, I know you and I have talked a lot about the development of our farm property. Um, We've got a lot of big projects coming there to try to improve habitat and um, yeah, I think maybe we can smuggle uh, my consultant Frank on with us for one of these episodes here. I think he'll drop a lot of knowledge in the tree and shrub world but um yeah long story short we don't put a lot out of there we we probably should and um you know maybe yeah maybe if there's folks that can draw from it and learn from it maybe there is a reason to do it but um i don't know um just kind of one of those goofy nuances to the the hunting world that um you know your story and your twists and turns will manipulate you one way or another so maybe this is a cute and do a little more there.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, trust me, you are not going to get any pushback from me and no social media because everybody, I think I've made this known to everybody, if it wasn't for the podcast I would have none because I had none before and I really don't enjoy it, but at the same time um i have really made some cool relationships and learned and met some people through it so it's it's not all uh, it's not all ugliness so um take that for what it's worth but man again thanks for coming on the show and uh hey we'll catch you on the next one dustin
1: thanks for having me man i always appreciate this and uh, can't wait to, to listen back